0: You are listening to ARD Healthcare, I am your host Anirban. You can expect deep, insightful conversations with stakeholders from clinical, technical, industrial and regulatory affairs about the bottlenecks of bringing AI to scale up access to healthcare at the planetary scale. I thank the Mikhai Society and Haitian AI for supporting the podcast. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. Welcome to the eighth season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a rather sunny day here in Darmstadt. I'm your host, Anirban. It is a pleasure to welcome today Dr. Ishita Borua. Ishita leads AI in healthcare at Deloitte with a focus on improving equity and outcomes in digital health. She is a medical doctor and PhD by training with expertise in application and clinical validation of AI in the medicine. She has uh, won numerous awards, actually, uh, including top 50 women in tech, top 30 women in Norway shaping the field of AI. So we are really looking forward to hear Ishita's journey of this transitional field between healthcare and AI. But first and foremost, welcome to the podcast, Ishita.
1: Thank you so much, Anirvan. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's very exciting to to be able to share my experience and thoughts on this. So thank you.
0: All right. Yeah, it's really also exciting to hear from you how your entire research and career has developed and that basically brings us to the first question which always traditionally is about becoming how did you how was your journey to the scientist you currently are
1: so i when i i have gotten this question before and i think i need to start off by saying that i would never be in ai research if i hadn't been a physician first so my road into medicine was, it was, uh, I think, determined by the fact that I wanted to really explore both the human mind, but also how are we able to to function and, and also treat uh, diseases. Uh, I wanted to explore that side of uh, medicine. And then I realized that during both studies, but also working as a a physician in training, I chose to go forward with gastroenterology. And I started with colonoscopy training. So this is a flexible scope that you insert into the rectum of the patient, and then you go looking for anything abnormal, like it could be lesions, a pre-lesion of cancer, uh, or other things that normally shouldn't be there. So, this is a flexible scope with a camera in the end. Uh, so, you're able to look inside the colon and look for uh, abnormalities. So, while I was in training, I realized that this is, uh, you're really so dependent on the physician doing these examinations. That if the physician is, let's say, uh, not caffeinated enough, haven't slept well, or, or just simply just having a bad day, then you're basically relying on their well-being. Which is, I think, well, obviously, no man is, uh, has superpowers. So, of course, you will have a bad day one day or another. And I, I felt like th- this is a very, like, not being able to perform at your best is something that you really need to uh, take into account that of course you could have those days and and those experiences. so i I got really interested in during my training for colonoscopy, I got interested in in tools that would enhance our abilities as physicians. And one day I heard about this AI project where they were using they were using um, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence in colonoscopy in order to Improve detection of both the polyps, which are these lesions inside the colon that eventually can become cancerous, but nine out of ten does not become cancer. So I was looking into how how can you use AI to actually detect them and also classify them into the groups neoplastic or non-neoplastic. Neoplastic Neoplastic meaning that they have a malignant potential. So like I said, like nine out of ten polyps would not be dangerous. It would not go and develop into cancer later on and also it takes like 10 to 15 years from having a polyp or actually a normal epithelium inside the colon and then developing into first a polyp and then over 10 to 15 years becoming a cancer so it's a long timeline and if you can catch a polyp during those 10 to 15 years as a as a polyp and and not a cancerous lesion then you can just remove it and then you're actually able to stop cancer from developing so uh when i heard of this project i was thinking okay let's do this i i want to dig deeper into this and see if we can develop really good tools that we can implement in the clinic and use so my motivation was came from being a physician and came from acknowledging that we're actually very, very, what can I say, like you're, you're, the patient is relying on, on your performance. Uh, and uh, it made me realize that we really need to look into how that performance can be, can meet a certain threshold every time, which you will get with AI, I was thinking. So that, yeah, I, I don't think I would be an AI researcher if I had not been uh, a physician first. So one thing led to another and, and also just saying yes, a lot of the times it will lead you to places that you did not plan for. I originally planned planned for becoming like a gynecologist, which I quickly realized during med school that yeah, okay, this is fun, but it's there are subspecialties where you get to be doing procedures and and the colon and the gastrophil really caught my eye. So I ended up somewhere completely different.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I guess You are talking about this entire research project of yours, which is about the clinical validation of colorectal cancer screening and how AI machine learning came uh, together with colonoscopy. You defended your PhD on this topic. So can you please sort of summarize the three main takeaway points of your findings?
1: Yes. I will try to do that. It's It's been a couple of months, but I, I think that we can start off by, by giving a little background. So uh, colorectal cancer is considered a growing health burden and a preventable disease. It is the third most common cancer and the second leading cause of cancer death worldwide. So it's a huge problem in the world, actually. And many countries have implemented colorectal cancer screening to reduce the risk of colorectal cancer incidence and mortality and colonoscopy is actually considered the gold standard for for colorectal cancer screening but it is like i previously mentioned it's dependent on endoscopist performance and technology used so novel technologies such as artificial intelligence machine learning targeting improved performance and and standardization it is expected that uh, these technologies will play a bigger role in colonoscopy screening in the future now clinical validation of the efficacy of ai is Important in the early adoption of AI-based tools, like for any new technology, or or even if it were about drugs, uh, new drugs would also have to go through this uh, clinical validation process. Now, so the aim of my PhD thesis and PhD research was to investigate the clinical performance of AI in colonoscopy for colorectal cancer screening. So we published three papers, which was these were the the foundation for my PhD. And in the first paper, we looked at detection of polyps. So we started off by investigating if recently developed AI tools could increase the detection of polyps and colorectal cancer during colonoscopy. And we compared that to colonoscopy performed with standard method. So we performed a systematic review and a meta-analysis and that showed a relative polyp increase of 50% with the use of AI-based polyp detection systems. But we also, to our surprise, found that the AI-based polyp detection systems improved the detection of sim, uh, the smaller polyps and polyps with little to no malignant potential. but it did, however, not show any difference in detection of advanced uh, adenomas. These are polyps that are known to have the highest potential for malignancy. So the takeaway or, or the impact of this could potentially lead to having overdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. Is the diagnosis of a medical condition that would never have caused any symptoms or problems. And like I said, nine out of ten polyps would never develop into cancer. So if you remove all polyps, there's a big chance that you're removing polyps that would never be harmful to the patients, that would never develop into cancer. And that is, you have to take into account that you're also putting the patient at risk of having. The complications such, such as bleeding or even perforation of, of the colon tract as well. Not that this is a significant, like this is not a very big risk, but th- it is still there, even if it is um, a small chance. And also uh, removing all these polyps, you could also risk like overtreatment. Uh, so you're doing unnecessary treatment for a condition that is not life-threatening and would never cause any symptoms later on. That was the first paper. And then we moved on to a second paper where we looked at the classification of polyps. So we thought that, okay, uh, one way to tackle uh, overdiagnosis and over-treatment would be to actually being able to classify a polyp as either neoplastic or non-neoplastic, like basically judging if they have any malignant potential. And then that could later on lead to not removing everything. If you know that this is not going to develop, you can leave it and then concentrate on those that are going to or have a high chance of becoming cancer. So what we did was to investigate whether an AI-based device for optical diagnosis could increase the sensitivity in identification of small, which is less than five millimeters in diameter, rectosigmoid adenomas uh, compared with visual inspection by the, the physician alone. Now, rectosigmoid adenomas, these are polyps that are have a potential for malignant development, and they're located in the rectum and sigmoid area of the colon, which is basically uh, uh, one of the lowest parts of the colon, uh, right above the anus and the anal area. Now, we compared the standard method of visual inspection with using an AI tool, and the results were published in um, New England Journal of Medicine Evidence, and they showed that there were no significant uh, increments in sensitivity when you used an AI tool, as opposed to only having a visual inspection by the doctor themselves. And the doctors did not perform significantly better at optical diagnosis of small neoplastic polyps with the use of AI. However, we did find that the study showed an increase in confidence level Uh, for the endoscopist in optical diagnosis of polyps. This suggests that that AI tools can have a very good effect on the confidence for these doctors. So when they are correct in assuming that a polyp is neoplastic uh, with the use of AI, they they can actually increase their confidence and remove those polyps. So even though we did not find any significant increases in the performance we did still find we thought thought it was very positive that their confidence levels were were improved and then we had a third paper looking into if we could do a, a prospective clinical implementation trial investigating the performance of an so-called ai speedometer this is a quality improving ai tool and and a speedometer uh, just as you have in the car it will measure how fast you're going so during colonoscopy, how fast the physicians are pulling out the camera and the colonoscope will actually have, uh, will factor into how many polyps they're seeing. So if they're pulling it out, of course, too fast, then they have a less of a chance to find all the polyps that they're supposed to. So we found an AI tool that would give feedback to the physicians uh, if, if uh, they were going too fast, Uh, they would hear an alert giving them feedback on to slow it down and vice versa. So you could also say that the optimal withdrawal time, that would be uh, at least six minutes. So they need to spend at least six minutes during the pullout in order for that colonoscopy to be optimal. Now, the aim of this study was to evaluate if the withdrawal time difference between colonoscopies performed with as ai speedometer and without the ai speedometer if it if there was any difference and the re- results showed no benefit from using the speedometer during colonoscopy in order to increase that withdrawal time so we actually found no withdrawal time difference and the takeaway from all of these three studies and in conclusion my thesis showed actually that there were no clear proof of benefit from using AI-based tools in colonoscopy screening. And that really accentuated also the importance of performing prospective studies uh, that are done in real clinical settings. Because obviously when you do these studies uh, retrospectively uh, or in silico, where you do simulations uh, on a computer, they will have like really good performance of like sensitivity on 99% and, 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 it really has created this hype but when you follow up doing uh, prospective studies you find that the results are a little bit different that could have a, a lot a number of reasons but i think that just like you do for drugs you really need to have an evaluation of the effect that ai tools have like what is the clinical utility uh, and you can only get that through through prospective studies such as an rct or other study designs so one of the conclusions from my PhD thesis was actually that, that we need to do uh, more prospective studies, to find if there is really a benefit from using these AI tools. And also, whenever you find that there isn't any significant difference, you could also say that, but does it lead to any betterment in judgment or, or taking better clinical decisions for the doctors? In this case, one of the studies showed that they had increased confidence, which is good so i only think that this this is uh, it doesn't add to the hype uh, it rather adds to the current understanding of where ai falls short and what is needed in order to implement ai in a in a good manner a beneficial manner uh, in the future
0: yeah that's really fascinating right like normally we see all these in silico retrospective evaluation where Everybody is saying, yeah, you saw so some, et cetera, et cetera. And
1: then, yeah, plays- I think there's a publishing bias as well. Unfortunately, you see that with not only AI research, but you see it in every single field. That mostly the papers that are getting published are those with a very positive result, right? So, I was, we knew when we saw the results, of course, our protocol stated that we would publish anyway, but which is how you conduct research properly. But still, we were a little worried that, okay, this is, this is not the result that we expected. We expected that there would be a significant difference in terms of AI improving the physician's performance. But when we did not find that, at least I got a little worried that maybe this isn't so interesting because it doesn't really fit into the, the current hype of AI fixing everything. And it's, it's also, you could say, maybe even a little controversial because... I think a lot of people are very ready to believe that AI will fix everything. But when you point out that you actually need these real world clinical studies showing, is there really an effect? And then you can say that, oh, maybe it's um it's the physicians that are not using the AI tools properly. I have gotten that comment as well. And I'm like, well, that would be uh something you would say about drugs as well. Like, okay, maybe they work in silico, and then when you take it into the real world, you're seeing. There, There is a discrepancy in performance. And I think that we need to have, we need to address this, but also I am also concerned that if we only do prospective studies and focus on that, it can take so much time that we're missing out on the potential benefit as well. So we need to design AI studies in a way that they do not take 10 to 15 years, which obviously uh, vaccine trials could could easily take that amount of time, so we need to do it in a in a way that is efficient, so that you can you can reap of the benefits, but still they are needed.
0: Yeah, that's really uh, an interesting point you are making, right? That we need to really go beyond what is the current hype cycle and see what evidence we have about these being beneficial. I mean, I have many f- follow up questions both both from the Human side and from the technical side. But maybe one thing that I want to ask first is basically, you are talking about the, let's say, in the second study, you are talking about the increase in confidence level, right? And that's one of the good things. If I really think it with a bit of a, I don't know, critical sense, though, that it it might actually
1: backfire as well. Yeah, I about is automation bias, right? Yes, you picked up on that because obviously we do not want to increase the confidence levels of those who are wrong about their assumption. So this was the confidence levels so of those who got it right. This was not the confidence levels of those who had it wrong. Like if the what we did in our study was that we removed all polyps and sent it to histopathology. So we got an, a definite answer to whether it was cancerous or, or not, or whether it was neoplastic or not. And we looked into the confidence levels because we wanted to see if the use of AI could, could change the physician's reflection on whether this was a polyp that was dangerous or not. Before going further, first they would do an assessment of whether that polyp without the use of AI, whether that poly was neoplastic or non-neoplastic. And then they would also have to say, with low confidence or high confidence, do you say this? And then afterwards, they would do the exact same thing, but this time with an AI tool. And then they would have to decide, did they still feel that this was a neoplastic or non-neoplastic polyp? And then low or high confidence. So what we would see was that there was an increase of confidence levels from the point where they didn't use AI, and then when they used AI, because the AI supported their uh, initial assessment, right? And that's what we wanted. We wanted it to support the correct assessments. So if you use it that way, I think it's beneficial. If you use AI to confuse the physicians then obviously it's it's not beneficial and uh, but this is what we wanted to look at like when they got it correct did they become more confident because obviously that's something we want you can be very confident and still you will have physicians just removing everything because they don't allow themselves to really rely on their own expertise so and this is called like defense medicine when you're being so you're taking decisions based on whether you fear uh, the outcome of doing the wrong thing. Obviously a little caution is always good, but if you look at it from another angle, you're actually having too much over, like the, the phenomenon that I mentioned earlier, overdiagnosis and over-treatment. It doesn't really need to better health. It actually leads to us doing more and more of things that really are not needed. So that's something that we want to avoid. And I think that in the future, the point of using AI is to become more efficient and having like a higher level of confidence as well, but also the sensitivity rate, it needs to be increased.
0: Yeah, that that's a wonderful example of like, for example, in the name of efficiency, it's not about, uh, uh, let's say, efficiency in, in outcomes that are easy to measure, but efficiency in outcomes that matters. And there is a definite difference to those. And you can only reach to these outcomes that matters if you are really, really doing the entire pipeline, designing experiments in a clinical setting and doing randomized control trial or like validation of that sort.
1: Exactly. And this is also something that I think we will see much more of in the future of AI research in medicine. We really need to have researchers that are looking into What are the outcomes that we are interested in uh, improving? Not just having some people call glamour AI. Like, why are you only, like, the point of having uh, AI in this research and this, in medicine in general, is actually to improving something. If you're only designing things and, and, and developing AI tools that not really solves any medical problems, then you're looking at it for all the wrong reasons, right? So... I think you have to be really, really truthful about why you're doing the studies, why you're interested in, in using AI. Is it for the betterment of something? And what outcomes are you interested in? And I think that should be something you look into right from the get-go. Like you need to be there. You need to include physicians and those that really understand the outcomes when you develop an AI tool. I think there's a lot of emphasis on having technologists and computer scientists. Uh, people with that background in the the developing process of it. But I think if you do not understand where you're going to end up, then you're really not designing it for any specific problem-solving task.
0: Yeah, that's really wonderful summary. So I guess the sort of other follow-up questions I had is more about the human questions, not so much the technical questions. Yep. And you are talking about colonoscopy. That's a Uh, very embarrassing slash uh, (laughs) difficult procedure for anyone who is going through it. And I guess there is a difference between, let's say, the diagnosis part and the screening part, because like When diagnosis, that means that person has already identified with pain or whatever blood in the stool, stuff like that. So the situation is much more, how to say, uh, panicky. And the person wants you to do whatever procedure you want to, to do to figure out if there is something wrong versus the situation of screening is much different, right? You are talking about maybe detecting something that is uh, 10 years down the line and that that person is not feeling anything. Why would that person would come for such a procedure? So, So I just wanted to get an understanding, first of all, this human part, the general human part of colonoscopy in diagnosis versus screening. And then secondly, more about the specific parts of Diagnosis that we were just talking about before we started recording and how having an understanding of a different cultural background and language, understanding of the language helped you in being closer to the patients that you are treating in your day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that this is something that all screening programs have in common. So you're basically you're examining a patient that is assumed to be at the moment without any both symptoms but also without any disease but you're checking them for future development of either a cancer or another disease that may develop so when you do that you're actually uh, the patients are putting their faith into the healthcare system that this is done in order to prevent any anything bad from developing right so I think that we really have to be careful when, when we introduce new screening programs, because this is, it, uh, there is always the potential for, for harm. There is also always uh, a certain risk involved. However, uh, with the screening programs, they think that the benefit from discovering or identifying a condition or a disease uh, will be better and uh, improving the lives of these patients having that said, I think that, uh, the patients that are coming in for colonoscopy screening, this is, this is done differently from country to country. So in Norway, we don't use any sedation normally in the U S you use sedation. So it might be a different, a different experience, but for all patients, there is a certain level of discomfort, obviously. I think you need, really need to be mindful is this, like we have, we have obviously chosen to say that this is meaningful. We should do this. This is good for the overall population above the age of 55 years, at least in Norway, when you start these screening programs. And I think that there are a lot of research that has been done on whether it is the right thing to do. And if if finding uh, potential like uh, polyps or, or even precancerous lesions is going to uh, better the lives uh, after identification. So I think that having introduced these screening programs, you have obviously landed on a yes, this can improve the lives. But still, it's, 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 we're not just implementing these screening programs because it's fun. Obviously, it's not. And if it could be avoided, we would have, it's, it's time consuming, resource consuming, and, and also something that it's, it's a burden for the patients uh, at some level. So I think in the future, if we can improve these screening programs with the use of AI showing an actual effect or, or uh, a positive outcome, I think that can be um, justified. But yeah, I think it's not just for for colonoscopy and and colorectal cancer screening. It's also for for breast cancer and other screening programs. You really need to you really need to like consider the the harms and the benefit, and always have like a, a discussion on whether uh, the benefits actually uh, outweighs the the harmful risks or or yeah. So I think it's it's not only for this specific screening program, it's for all of them. And, and also all screening programs will probably have to consider using AI tools if it's leading to better outcomes.
0: Yeah, that's a great point you are making, right? That for putting so much extra effort in terms of screening, if it's really something that is necessary, then we still have to embrace technology to make sure we are gaining the efficiency but then you come into this bottleneck of uh, uh, making sure it's efficient while still being accurate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The other part of the question I had is about your experience of coming from a background, which is different from where you currently practice and how that helped you in in really making sure you, you make a connection to your patients who are basically relying that you will perform the rather painful, difficult procedure of colonoscopy with a, I don't know, certain level of efficiency. For example, you are talking about the language, like knowing the language where the patient is not comfortable in uh, speaking, let's say, English or the Norwegian where you currently practice, how having the knowledge of another language really helped you in making, I don't know, building bridges with people.
1: Yeah, of course. Okay, so this is something we talked about before with the record button, actually, because I was telling you about uh, having patients with a different cultural background and speaking another language other than than English or Norwegian, which is my mother tongue. But my parents are from from Bangladesh. And so I I, growing up, I also was taught Bengali. And I have experienced having patients that speak Bengali and and are not so fluent in in Norwegian or English. And that has helped me uh, in ways that I did not foresee. Like I, I thought I only <laughs> needed to learn the language in order to to be able to communicate with my grandparents. but um it it, it does help because it it makes it, making that connection to your patients speaking in a language that they are the most familiar with it relaxes them in a completely different way and also it builds trust so i think that another takeaway message from this is that okay you can use let's say ai tools you can maybe even have robots in the future like in very like distant future maybe you will have robots doing all this but i still think there is a human touch that is really needed for building trust so i think that Speaking the language it doesn't really matter which language it is, but speaking in a way that makes your patients feel really taken care of, I think, is really maybe it's even undervalued because, as you pointed out, this is like doing a colonoscopy is a really you're in a really fragile state. You're lying there waiting for the the scope to to be inserted, and it's really not a comfortable position. So any way you can make your patient comfortable i think it's uh, it's a great asset to have yeah that's really
0: a wonderful way of emphasizing that why it's so human and why we have to really think beyond our silos of solving the problems in an in silico retrospective data set and really think about the uh, situations in which you practice so but uh, this let's let's change the our gear a bit towards your more of the current role in deloitte and what really you do in deloitte and how does a typical day of your uh, of yours look like in the job that you currently have
1: yes so after completing my phd i i, I realized that okay in order for this uh, these AI tools to really be implemented in healthcare. You really need to be working with those who are pushing this. And I think that while being a physician is, is really rewarding and, and something I would love to go back to at some point, I still think that there are things that you, you cannot really focus on the implement, implementation of new technology while also having to do patient care, right? So I just realized that, let's be realistic, this is not doable, I cannot do everything. And I, I was very much motivated by the fact that we really need better tools in the clinic because currently we're using even a fax just to do get uh, the EKGs from one hospital to another. Like it's, it's, it's just, it's, <laughs> I, hope, I was about to say hopeless, but I think that the the we really have a very outdated infrastructure and i think we could really benefit from from going through a digital transformation at a hospital level and that really motivated me into looking into how can i work with implementation uh, because now i've researched it i've come in, i've looked at it from a from a research angle of this and even though our our results pointed out that there was a there was a gap on like there is a even a bottleneck for implementation that is uh, the fact that we need to do prospective studies i chose to go into industry and working on how we can adopt these ai tools and and make it easier for healthcare professionals to actually start using them and this is like well my research focused on 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 really uh, clinical decision tools right but you also have ai solutions that are for more low-hanging fruit like for Supply chain, like for transportation, like there are other aspects of healthcare, both at the at the primary physician uh, offices, but also um, at hospital levels, where you can benefit from using AI that are that does not have any risk, risking patient lives connected to it, right? So if you can make the streamline these processes in a better way and makes it more efficient, then why not? use that. I think that in healthcare, it's it's um, you cannot have the mantra of Zuckerberg, which is, it goes like this, um, move fast and break things. Obviously, that was not meant for healthcare. It's meant for different or disruptive innovations in other sectors, but not for healthcare. But I still think that we need to really be able to transition from having this outdated infrastructure and tools to using these that, are, that can really be beneficial. So I wanted to go into industry and chose to do consultancy work uh, where we actually work with hospitals and, and uh, GP offices to make that transition and help them because while they are busy doing the patient care uh, work, uh, I think we can be busy with, with, with pushing and, and, and making them realize how this can make their everyday life better So that was the reason, and what I do in my everyday life as a as a AI lead in healthcare at Deloitte Norway is to actually follow leads from our clients, uh, looking at the existing problems that they have, coming up with solutions. Like I said initially, this is as a physician you can you can identify the problems, but not it's not necessarily so that you have the time or capacity to follow up on what the solution should be for that specific problem, whether it's having like you even have uh, electronic patient uh, records that are not even, uh, you're not able to share them between different hospitals, right? So even that becomes a problem. How can you, like if a patient has recorded an arrhythmia on their Apple watch, how can they make sure that you as a physician at the hospital get that information? There There isn't really any a good way to do that. And it also involves um like this is sensitive information so it's obviously not just to send a text to your physician right so these solutions need to be in place and and who else to do that work it needs to be other than the healthcare professionals because they are busy saving lives you need to have somebody else doing that work
0: yeah that's really a wonderful way to think about it that once you have the insider's knowledge you have to probably step outside to really see where you can bring a lot of breakthroughs. But talking about, I guess, from ancient technology to, again, ancient uh, ways of thinking about uh, healthcare, uh, you are passionate about the gender data gaps and especially the uh, gender data gaps that are magnified by when AI is trained on such data and ended up... Putting women's health at risk. Can you give us a sort of insight of this problem that
1: you have faced? Yes. So if I were to come up with, uh, with AI tools that are trained with biased data, I could say that this is a general, this is a general problem in medicine. It's not just isolated to AI research. Medical data is biased because this is how we have been practicing uh, medicine for a long time. Like we have regarded the the female body as a default male body, for instance. So there are a lot of biases that are already in the data that we use for also a training of AI models. And also you can say that the gender data gaps in healthcare, they are already putting women at risk in many ways. So you have uh, the aspect of adverse drug reactions. You have two thirds of the drug uh, adverse drug reactions reported to uh, the Norwegian Medicines Agency, they are from women. And one risk is that the standard male dose may turn out to be too high for women. So, for example, the, the um, recommended uh, dose of sleeping pill in Ambien, it was reduced to half the dose because women metabolize it at half the time as men. You also have the other aspect of care delays and errors, like doctors tend to misdiagnose, underdiagnose, or even undertreat women that pre, um, or diseases, I mean, that, that predominantly affect women in situations where women present with different symptoms for common diseases. For example, you have heart attacks. They are more likely to be misdiagnosed in women because they don't always experience the typical male symptom of, of chest pain. It takes up to 10 years to diagnose conditions such as endometriosis, which is a uh, gynecological disease that affects 5 to 10% of women, partly because many physicians dismiss or doubt reports of severe or chronic pain by female patients. And compared to men, women who report chronic pain are prescribed less effective pain medication. And a third aspect of this is that women actually also experience more disease and disability so women outlive men on average, but experience more disease and disability. They also have a lower survival uh, rate for certain diseases, for example, for example, heart diseases, which is the leading cause of death in women as well as men globally. And after a heart attack, caregivers who are typically female, they are more likely to suffer another heart attack or die within a year. So these are some of the, the data that we already have that we've know um, they are putting women at risk. And also, like we have studies showing that women are 32% more likely to die after an operation by a male surgeon and have 15% more chance of about a bad outcome than if the procedure was done uh, and performed by a woman. This is a research that was uh, published in uh, the Journal of American Association, Medical Association in 2022. So it's very new even. And the results like these have real world medical consequences for female patients. And and they manifest itself in more complications uh, and readmissions to hospital and death for females compared with males. So you could say on a macro level, the results are troubling, especially considering the fact that when a female surgeon operates, patient outcomes are generally better, particularly for women even after adjusting uh, for differences in chronic health status, age, and other factors with the patients and when undergoing the same procedures, but with a male physician. So I think, and this is data that we have before doing anything that requires AI tools, right? So I think that the medical data is already flawed and, and I think we need to be able to recognize that if we're using this data for developing uh, new AI tools, I think that when the data is flawed, you will also have uh, outcomes that are bad for women. So you're just basically reproducing the bias that already exists in medical data.
0: Yeah, you are making a very important point here. I mean, one thing if I'm thinking about really is also the fact that, uh, for example, most of the data that you mentioned coming from these uh, research are also coming from the so-called Global North. And the exact problem of how women and women health are perceived also is a very socioeconomic problem. So the data that we are not seeing is probably more biased.
1: Exactly.
0: AI Already we are aware of the fact that beyond the type of data that it has seen in during training, if the data becomes diverse, data becomes heterogeneous, the performance drops. So really, yeah. performance drop will happen more in the cases where there is already a significant how to say so so the the women are already probably treated in the system much more worse than than not, so that's a like I don't know double bad situation that somehow uh, creates a sort of circular effect Uh, so that's really a problematic thing Uh, uh, one thing I I noticed from Norway is that there is a report uh, this big difference report and that uh, gave us several interesting insights about the Norwegian uh, situation of this gender gap can you give us some insights maybe that is also applicable beyond Norway to the more of a, for our global audience, this, this gender gap in data and how that's affecting?
1: Yeah, so the report that you're referring to is a, is a report that the Norwegian Ministry of Health and Care Services launched on women's health in Norway and why sex and gender matter. It came out earlier this year, and this report addresses the biases and, and health disparities affecting women. Now, they concluded that we have failed to account for sex and gender health policy and healthcare services. And three findings that I would like to, to highlight uh, they had many. Uh, these are the following um, Women's health is considered low prestige, and this may have consequences for priority setting in healthcare. The second is that we need updated knowledge on sex and gender differences in health because this is not sufficiently integrated in healthcare policies today. And also third, women's voices and experiences are not listened to. They're not integrated as part of the, or how we develop guidelines. So the commission behind this important report, uh, they also gave uh, an action list of 75 actions to be taken. And and they also requested an additional 1 billion Norwegian kroners uh, to women's health funding. So one of the recommendations from that list was to utilize more technology in precision medicine to benefit women's health and and customize the treatment to their needs and and symptoms. They actually also specifically mentioned the potential of using AI in achieving this goal. However, they also pointed out that with health data and and, um, the big gender gaps that we have in our understanding of women's health, you, you run the risk of uh, reproducing uh, the biases, like I mentioned earlier. So they also, this is something that is highlighted in, in the report and giving extra attention, the, the potential of using AI, but also uh, the pitfalls that we really need to acknowledge.
0: Yeah, that's really uh, fascinating. And at the same time, probably a very dark world. If you are thinking about that, uh, the prestige determines who ends up uh, in those professions, and of course, probably uh, prestige also means like you have typically keep uh, the quality of people on average is slightly lower. Plus, the the knowledge is not updated, and the women experience is not even accounted for. And then, then again, we are into this vicious. Cycle, vicious loop where things can only go wrong until there are some uh, significant changes that 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 is taken care of at the policy level to really make make things different. That's really a dark picture, and it probably taints how AI. Can actually help versus what is much more risky, how it might actually hurt and uh, magnify the problem itself rather than finding solutions. I guess. We are towards the end of uh, our discussion, and it's also sort of a traditional question here, but if you are looking at your role as a physician who transitioned into uh, this cross-section of clinical validation of AI research, you have also encountered this the gap in the data itself and gap in the understanding of the procedures where AI will come into. So from this perspective, if you are looking at the next five years, where do you think the space of healthcare AI is heading, and what would be the major success stories in the coming five years or so?
1: I think that uh, with the introduction of ChatGPT uh, and the language models, I think that will certainly make its impact in healthcare. I think it's about time we had tools that can be used to to really um influence <laughs> and impact how, how much time we spend on documentation and, and things that are a byproduct of our practice. Like obviously we need to be able to provide good care, but the part where you need to document it, it takes up, it consumes so much of our time as physicians that it's it really need to be it really needs to be optimized. And I think that using using language models for that in a secure way would really benefit healthcare. Uh, so that's that's for for uh, uh, efficiency aspect of it, uh, but I also think that uh, I was surprised because I, I, I a couple of years ago I read uh, Eric Topol's book, uh, Deep Medicine, and and just as the title alludes to, he he hypothesized that AI would make us more human in our engagement with patients, right? And I I, I really think that is correct. However, I would like to point out that we have recent uh, studies showing that um, the, the replies from chat GPT sometimes is regarded as more uh, empathetic and, and better judged by, by patients or by researchers uh, and compared to the replies from, from physicians and trained physicians. So I think the way AI is really going to, to improve healthcare is by giving us tools to be, to optimize our performance, right? To meeting a certain threshold. And I think that even in in patient care, like in Tuppel's book, he points out that, oh, if the machines can can help us do the more, what can I say, the more boring parts of our job, like documentation, then we can focus on having uh, or providing good patient care, like really being hands-on with our patients. I think that even that needs, there. I, I think AI can be used even in that area we can learn to become more uh, empathetic we can we can actually learn how we can become better doctors not just b- like uh, automating our documentation but also in the way we meet and address our patients there are ways where we we can learn to give better more meaningful answers to the questions that our patients have and that is reflected in those studies that that i think we thought ai was just going to automate the things that we feel is is very boring. But I also think that they can be helpful in, in providing insight into, in, into how our communication can actually be optimized. Uh, and that was surprising. I, I really thought that, that we would be able to, what can I say, uh, still be kings at communication. And, and then we see that even that is being uh, challenged by tools like ChatGPT and, and uh, natural language models. So I think we will be surprised by how many applications there will be that we can actually benefit from so in the coming years. I think that generative AI and and language models will have a huge influence if it's being incorporated and implemented correctly. I think we really need to be able to to find secure ways because obviously these are not these are not. Uh, this is not, like, these are human lives we're talking about. We can obviously not have systems that that lack this, or you need to have, like, a really good understanding of uh, how to preserve the data and how to keep it safe and not having a third party that is not supposed to have this kind of data and give, uh, like, really secure the access.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting future indeed where you can actually spend more quality time with patients while having uh, empathetic conversations and probably some of the boring tasks of filling up word documents with patient history, (laughs) etc., taken over by chat GPT-like systems, but far more secured and not controlled by someone sitting at the ivory tower, of course. But on that note, thank you so much for your time, Ishita. It was really wonderful talking to you. We learned a lot about the transitioning part and what are the lots of key questions that you enabled by having going through this transition process. I hope all our listeners have learned a lot and probably benefit a lot uh, when they are thinking about their research. Thank you so
1: much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me, Anurban.